Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. March Madness, tech stocks bounce again, bond yields settle again, and GameStop soars again. Bond buying boost, the European Central Bank acts to contain rising rates. And Listing Love, the CEO of connections app Bumble, talks pandemic dating oh, and earnings. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. And there's plenty of good news to bring to you today. The U.S. emergency aid bill is finally agreed. The tech bulls are back. Bonds are becalmed, helped by that ECB bombshell, or should we call it bond shell? And it's high fives at the NYSE 2. Let's get to it. Gaming stocks, Roblox, gained more than 50% on its first day of trade yesterday. And today's newcomer is South Korean e-commerce giant Coupang. We've got all the details on that. Plus, the NYSE vice chairman, John Tuttle, will join later to give us his take on the lifting lift and what we're seeing broadly in the markets. And from listing lift to listing love, as I mentioned, we'll also be joined by the CEO of the social media and dating app Bumble to talk about their first earnings since going public last month. And now to the bourse buzz. And it's volatile. The Nasdaq is up. 1.5% pre-market, similar, if you remember, to the gains that we saw yesterday that then dissipated throughout the session. European stocks, meanwhile, are broadly higher. The ECB not hanging around either. They're stepping up their bond purchase program, too. To Asia now, Chinese shares broke their recent losing streak with the Shanghai Composite up more than 2.3%. And we're continuing to see the U.S. stimulus surge being priced into global stocks. But the underlying recipients of this support matters so much more, including another 712,000 Americans filing for first-time benefits in just the last week alone. Wow, there's lots to get to. Let's get more on all of this in our drivers. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, as I mentioned there, This time yesterday, we were talking about what one and a half percent gains for the Nasdaq and then we lost them. And I also want to mention GameStop as well, because I was watching that throughout the session that surged and made highs that we saw back in January, but then lost 50 percent once again over the course of a 30 minute trading session. Um, Rather than me. No, rather you than me explaining what on earth is going on in these markets right now. Paul, so give me your take. Yeah, I mean, quickly on GameStop, I mean, at this point, Julia, you might as well put your money on black or red at the roulette table. It's just that insane uh, of a gamble right now. But with the broader market, there is obviously optimism about that $1.9 trillion stimulus package that has now been passed by the House and the Senate is going to be signed by President Biden. So there are hopes that the people that need the most economic help are going to be getting more. And you already noted as well that 
712,000 people filing for weekly unemployment claims. Yes, that's lower than a week ago, but it's still extremely elevated. The ECB obviously not taking its uh, foot off the gas pedal with more stimulus. The Fed likely to show more support for stimulus when it meets next week. So I think right now, concerns about inflation running too hot have taken a backseat again because investors are excited that stimulus is coming. That should be good news for the economy, should good news for corporate earnings as well. And hence, that's why we're seeing a stock market rally. Yeah, and fundamentals start to uh, perhaps catch up with some of the valuations that we've seen more broadly as a result. All of these things very much tied and cyclical, obviously also fueling some of the optimism that we're seeing in these unicorns stampeding to market as well. Roblox among them. And we talked about it yesterday, but I don't know. I'm not sure either of us imagined a 50 billion dollar valuation, because that's what we're looking at. I think if the pre-market gains that we're seeing come to fruition when this market opens. Paul, what do you make of this? Because you spoke to the yeah, CEO too. Exactly. It's stunning. I mean, the, the stock rose more than 50% yesterday, about a $45 billion valuation up again pre-market. The CEO of Roblox, when I spoke to him, he's optimistic about the company's uh, growth. They are not yet making money, but the revenue growth is stunning. And what he is really interested in I think going forward, two things. One, there's this perception that obviously Roblox is really just for tweens. And even though younger users still make up the majority of that more than 30 million million active user base, he noted that the 17 to 24-year-old group is starting to grow at a more rapid clip than the tween demographic, which is interesting. It shows maybe that you've got bored high schoolers and college students looking to play Roblox. And also, he said that right now, most of the money is coming from selling their virtual currency Robux that users can use to buy goods in the game. But they're looking to try and do more native advertising that makes sense as well. Things like, for example, if you're going to be wearing Nike shoes in the game, that's a way for Nike, for example, to advertise in a more organic way than, say, you're walking around in your Roblox world and all of a sudden there's an Air Jordan billboard staring right at you. Yeah, they're all spenders of the future. They're all in the younger proportion of the users of this, people that can go to their parents and say, hey, I've seen this and I I would like it, please, for Christmas or birthday. But you know the standout fact for me, Paul, and I was wading through all the information on this, Roblox users spent 22 billion hours on the platform and explored an average of over 20 different experiences each month. Wow. Yeah. That's a yeah. monetizable yeah. number if ever I saw one. <laughs> and the CEO, yeah, clear. CEO said he was not worried about competition. Obviously, a lot of other games out there are attracting interest. Fortnite and Among Us and what have you. There are still a lot of very engaged Roblox players out there. Yeah, I hear digital currency in my ears peel and I see 22 billion hours and all sorts of things go on in my brain. You don't want to know, Paul Monica. Thank you so much. Great to have your insights on that. We're going to be talking about this much more in the future, I can see. All right, the European Central Bank made no changes to its rates or pandemic stimulus program, but says it expects to significantly step up bond buying to combat rising yields across the region. John Defterius joins me now. I make that a whopping great change to its uh, programs, quite frankly, when they're making this announcement. They're signaling loud and clear that as much as, I mean, German, French, Dutch yields out to 10 years are still zero, let's be clear. 
but they're not holding back. They're stepping in here and saying, we will keep rates down, really down. Yeah, this is a very uh, delicate balancing act, I would say, uh, Julia, and that is for Christine Lagarde and the governing council here. They want to uh, to show everybody they're on guard when it comes to those higher yields and that pressure we see coming from the United States, but not to micromanage the process. But they didn't want to lose the opportunity to send a signal back out again because they've been holding back the purchases uh, of the bonds over the last three weeks. So uh, in the statement that they put out for the ECB and also in the press conference with Ms. Lagarde, she said they'll have a higher rate of purchases over the next quarter. And then she circled back during the press conference in the last 25 minutes to say, significantly higher. Uh, they do have this arsenal of 1.8 trillion euros uh, to use through March 2022. Uh, they don't believe perhaps they'll have to spend it all, and that is the market view. That's some $2.2 trillion. But the continuity is there. But she wanted, again, reinforce the fact that the downside risk is coming from the coronavirus, and they'll act accordingly until the coronavirus phase, as they say, uh, is over. I also thought it was quite interesting, if you're sitting around the ECB table, and I remember being in Frankfurt during the different meetings over the years, uh, they cut a break today, if you will, Julia, because we had that 10-year yield in the United States pop up above 1.6%. They go into the meeting today, that pressure was off a little bit, right? So they don't have to overreact, but they have to reignite the belief in the markets that they're ready to act themselves when necessary. And that was a very clear signal coming from the ECB today. I love the tie that you made there between Europe and the United States, because it's all for all of these central banks now, the balancing act of trying not to spook the markets when there's hopes for recovery, but at the same time mm. saying, look, we're not there yet and we still have to act. Perhaps... Europe's in a better position and the ECB is in a better, unfortunate position handling this, because if their vaccine rollout had been swifter, perhaps the challenge would have been greater. Europe's still faced with big challenges well, and the vaccine rollout there is slower. Yeah, in indeed. It's a great point that you're making, yeah. and I'll tell you why, because they upgraded their forecast here from the last European Commission uh, report. So the European Commission was suggesting 3.7% growth. Uh, Ms. Lagarde was suggesting they could get 4% this year, uh, but they said they will manage the process with the balance of keeping an eye on the 10-year the yield that you see in the United States and the inflationary pressures. But they think inflation will be capped at 1.5% this year and in 2022 start to ease off. So again, the message is, Julia, uh, no panic on the horizon. She did recognize that 13% uh, spike we've seen in oil prices in February and this phasing out of the VAT tax in Germany which uh, skewed the inflation numbers for January, which was 0.9% and quite uh, alarming. So 4% growth in the, in the European Union, and then you have 6.5% growth in the United States, 6.2% within the G20. Uh, so again, flexibility was one key word, she said, but we are monitoring and managing inflation, which they don't think is a real threat at this stage with the slower growth, and that threat, as you suggest, because of the uh, delayed vaccine rollout uh, in Europe in particular. Yeah, flexibility, the watchword globally, quite frankly, I think it's a great point. John Defterius, yeah. great to have you with us. All right, to today's listing now, South Korean e-commerce giant Coupang, often compared to Amazon for its super fast delivery service, making its stock market debut in New York. The SoftBank-backed firm raised $4.6 billion, giving it a market valuation of 60 billion dollars. It's the largest IPO by a foreign company since Alibaba back in 2014. Selena Wang joins us with all the details. Talk us through Coupang. Selena, what do we need to know?
Well, Julia, we've seen that this IPO has priced above target. So, so far, investor interest in this IPO is red hot. Now, Coupang, often dubbed the South Korean Amazon, was founded in 2010 by Bom Kim. It is known for its extremely fast delivery, same day, as well as a service called Dawn Delivery. So that means you can put in your order at midnight and get your package before 7 a.m. the next day. It's also expanded into areas like food delivery as well as streaming. It's clearly taking a page out of Amazon's playbook, not at profitability yet and not trying to achieve that until it has gained market dominance. Revenues, however, did nearly double last year amid gains during the pandemic and a boost to online shopping. Now, this company, however, has come under increasing scrutiny after several deaths from its employees in its logistics and delivery units, allegedly from overworking. Labor activists have accused Coupang for being obsessed with efficiency and exploiting its workers. The company, however, has denied any mistreatment. Coupang has said that it's invested heavily into automation and increasing its warehouse workforce so that the workload will be reduced. Now, in fact, I recently spoke to a former board member of Coupang who said that in many ways this company is out Amazoning Amazon. He says this company is taking logistics to an entirely new level. I want to bring up this fascinating statistic from the IPO prospectus, which says that about 70% of the South Korean population now lives in within a seven-mile radius of a Coupang logistics delivery center. So you can imagine why those packages get to people's doors so very extremely quickly. And I also want to talk about some of the major gainers here. Now, SoftBank is the biggest shareholder in Coupang. It invested at least $3 billion since 2015, and that stake is now worth $20 billion. I had spoken to Bomb Kim a few years ago, and he said that Masa has always encouraged him to think big, and clearly think big he did. Julia? Especially when you hear terms like out Amazoning Amazon, quite frankly, we'll see when they get to the global stage. But some fascinating moves going on there in in South Korea and, of course, now listing in the United States. Slita Wang, great rap as always. All right, let's move on. An AstraZeneca alert. Norway and Iceland joining Denmark suspending the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. Italy also banning a new batch of the company's vaccines too. Melissa Bell joins us live from Paris. Melissa, what more do we know? Well, Judy, we've seen this growing list of countries announcing Mm. that they're suspending for 14 days the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. As you say, they follow others that Italy has now joined, uh, banning for the time being or putting aside that particular batch of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, for the time being, we've heard uh, two things. First of all, the European Medicines Agency saying uh, that there is for the time being no suggestion that the issues we've seen in some of these countries, uh, which have to do, Julia, with blood clots, are linked in any way to that vaccine, and that those specific conditions are not listed as any of the side effects of those vaccines. We've also heard in these last few moments, Julia, from AstraZeneca itself, uh, saying that, of course, patient safety was first and foremost, but uh, really reminding us of the fact that as a result of those phase three clinical trials and peer-reviewed data, uh, all of the research done on the vaccine so far had suggested uh, that it was fairly well tolerated. So uh, these countries now looking into those issues that they They've had some with a particular batch, others putting aside the vaccine for four days altogether. But of course, yet another blow, uh, Julia, to that uh, European vaccination rollout. For the time being, the AstraZeneca was one of three uh, that had been approved for use in the EU. We just heard the European Medicines Agency add the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to that list. But that, of course, 
that decision now has to go down to the national agencies of the member states. So it will be some days before those vaccines come online. And given the supply difficulties in so many European countries, this is, of course, yet another bit of bad news, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, obviously... A relief, I think, that the ECB chose to act today in light of the ongoing vaccine challenges in the EU. Melissa, thank you for laying that out for us there. Melissa Bow. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. It's been one year since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. President Joe Biden will deliver a primetime address from the White House tonight to commemorate the anniversary and discuss what he calls the next phase in the COVID response. Japan is marking a solemn anniversary of its own. It's 10 years since the worst natural disaster in the country's recent history, the massive earthquake and tsunami that triggered the Fukushima nuclear meltdown. People across Japan held a moment of silence to mourn the 22,000 victims. All right, so to come on first move, the cannabis war hots up as a major U.S. player buys into a blossoming market in Europe. The chairman of Cure Relief explains all next. And the pandemic had Bumble's dating apps abuzz with activity. Can the attraction outlast social distancing? The CEO joins us with her views. Stay with us. There's more to come. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where the tech turnarounds continue. I'm putting a plural on that. The Nasdaq set to bounce further from 10% correction levels hit earlier in the week. The Dow is set to rise to new records after closing above 32,000 for the first time ever yesterday. And news that the ECB is adding to the global stimulus efforts again has helped firm up futures this morning. Wow, look at that. Uh, The European Central Bank saying it will buy more European debt to dampen down yields. And that's helping push U.S. yields global too, hence the global effort. U.S. 10-year yields retreating below that key 1.5 level at one point earlier today. We're just above that at 151, the level now. European yields also heading lower too. Right, to a separate market now, the largest cannabis company in the United States growing in Europe too, in a sizable way. Cure Relief, which has more than 100 shops and outlets in the United States, is buying Emac Life Sciences in a $286 million cash and stock deal, opening key markets including Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain and the United Kingdom. And here's why, perhaps, according to Statistica, revenue from the legal marijuana market in Europe in 2019 was $0.3 billion as legalization of recreational cannabis gains pace. That's expected to rise to $2.5 billion by 2024. Curalief also says it's eyeing the Middle East and Africa for potential opportunities. Boris Jordan is chairman of Cure Relief and joins us now. Boris, great and excited to have you on the show and get your insights on this. Europe is fragmented in a similar way to the United States, whether we're talking about recreational cannabis or we're talking about medicinal use of cannabis. What's your take on the opportunity in Europe and why the investment? We're very excited about this investment. We are, as you said, the largest operator in the United States. Uh, We operate both in medical states and in adult use states in the United States. And we are projected to do, you know, 1.2 to 1.3 billion dollars of revenue in that market. And as the largest operator, we were looking, where's the growth going to come in 23, 24 and 25? 
We looked at the European market. I've got a long history in data centers and other investments in Europe. And I felt very, very comfortable with what, what was going on. We've got medical markets today, largely pharmaceutical type markets in, in Europe, uh, in the states that you mentioned. And now we're heading towards Switzerland and Holland, reviewing pilot projects in adult use. I think with Angela Merkel stepping down in Germany in September, we understand that there's initiatives to take Germany into the adult use markets. They are the largest medical market in Europe, but we think that they'll probably start reviewing adult use legislation. If Germany goes, as you know, the domino effect could go along all of Europe. Israel's also looking at adult use legislation this year. So we think that Europe presents a huge opportunity with over 700 million people in the greater European area, a potential market twice the size of the United States over some period of time. You know, it's interesting to sort of compare and contrast the different use and the opportunities in Europe versus the United States. Even with what we see at the state level with opening up and greater allowance of use in the United States, it's challenged by the federal rules for businesses, at least, over the ability to bank, for example, in in cannabis and what operations you can do and have as a bank transacting with cannabis companies. How does that compare in Europe to as a, a big company going there and looking at the opportunities? So the European situation is very different. In Europe, mm. the medical cannabis market is legal uh, on an EU basis. And so you can bank uh, at any bank. In the United States, there's a different uh, set of rules. In the United States, we have to bank with local state banks. We cannot bank with the federally regulated banks. That will change this year in the United States as the Biden administration is moving to pass Safe Banking Act, which will allow us to operate with all these banks. But in Europe, and that's why Curaleaf's acquisition, it, it, we're ring fencing the European operations completely, and they'll be uh, they'll be financed from the European level in order not to breach uh, that legislative aspect of it and the regulatory aspect. So in Europe, cannabis companies can bank w- with any bank that they wish to bank with. And where is the the sort of greatest monetary opportunity here? Because one of the big criticisms I heard when all the excitement two years ago began in the cannabis space, it was anyone can buy some land and start planting cannabis plantations when legalization takes place. Is the money and the real opportunity in distributing products and derivatives, whether it's for recreational use or, or medicinal use, Boris, rather than actually planting the cannabis and then utilizing it? Because obviously at the moment you have to do both. Yes, we have to do both at the moment because that's what regulations uh, uh, insist on and because we want to have safe, regulated product. But eventually the future is obviously in branding and distribution and Cureleaf strategy is very much in, we have two major brands, Cureleaf, our wellness brand, which is the brand that's most likely to come to Europe almost immediately, focused on medical and wellness products and our select brand, which is our adult use brand, uh, which focuses more on the recreational user. And so it is the future. Branding is definitely the future. It's our major reason we're going into Europe because we feel it's going to be an extension of already significant brand presence in the United States to go into Europe and start to distribute our brands in Europe uh, through the EMAC acquisition. Yeah. And can I ask you what you've seen in terms of demand this year, just out of interest? I think the world's been so preoccupied, perhaps, with other investments, volatility, not to mention, of course, the pandemic itself and and people perhaps looking at this as a lung illness and the implications of smoking whatever product it is. Boris, what have you seen in terms of demand and how do you view this market through a prism of the pandemic? 
the, the pandemic has been um, a, a, a real game changer for the cannabis industry. Yeah. Uh, in the United yeah. States, we've seen a, a tripling of demand. Uh, we've seen uh, older patients coming into our stores, people 70 years and older, to buy products to deal with anxiety, sleep problems, uh, pain issues. Uh, and these are usually non-smokable products. These are highly formulated uh, medicinal and wellness type products, whether they be a lozenger, whether they be a slow release pill, whether they be a tincture. Those are the types of products that we're seeing being bought during the pandemic. But we were made essential in the United States during the pandemic. And so all of our stores remained open and we actually increased by 50% our store count and we'll do the, the same this year in the United States. And in Europe also, we've seen an increase in demand. In, in England alone, month on month, the patient using cannabis are growing by 40%. So these are really staggering numbers and we feel the timing is absolutely right. Even though the legislation in Europe is slower and a little bit behind the United States, we're absolutely confident that it will follow suit and maybe even eventually lead uh, in Europe with uh, their medicinal and recreational programs. I mean, you use the word staggering and I agree with you. Clearly you, and you can tell me whether you think you've jumped years in terms of bringing people's awareness and raising awareness of the the benefits perhaps of this use, again, for recreational, anxiety and medicinal purposes. Do you think regulation follows as a result of this increase that we've seen, whether it's in the United States and Europe, of use by people? We have found we have found that the legislators in the United States and in Europe are way behind public opinion on the issue of cannabis. The public has embraced in the United States, it's 93% approval rating for medicinal cannabis and 76 for adult use. The legislators are way, way behind, both at the state and the federal level in the United States and in Europe as well. Um, the demand for population for cannabis products we believe that the illicit market in Europe is $90 billion at the moment with a 10% penetration throughout Europe of cannabis users today. And we still don't have comprehensive legislation addressing this issue. So people are forced to go to the illicit market and use products that may be unsafe. So it's absolutely imperative for European uh, governments as well as US to move quickly. Look, Mexico just approved adult use cannabis today. Uh, Canada has had has done it. Many countries in South America are moving in that direction. And the, the two biggest economies in the world, the United States and Europe, have not that set regulations to deal with this issue. And so this has to be done. They're way behind the population on this issue. I mean, there's huge safety concerns to your point. There's also business reasons to do this as well, because there's lost tax receipts. So the government should look at that, if nothing else. Boris, great Absolutely. to have you with us. Yeah. Boris Jordan, chairman of Kiraleaf. Great to have you on. We'll speak soon, no doubt. Thank you. All right. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are open for trading this Thursday. Stocks are higher right out of the gate, this time helped by the news flow out of Europe. The ECB announcing that it will, quote, significantly step up its bond buying to take pressure off rising bond yields. European Central Bank Chief Christine Lagarde insisting that she's not engaged in yield curb control. Interesting. Today's move, however, is a study in contrast. Fetcher Jay Powell saying recently that he was merely keeping an eye on rising U.S. yields at this point. The situation, of course, between the U.S. and Europe, very different. 
in terms of uh, vaccines. European health officials, though, announcing today they are recommending approval for Johnson & Johnson's one-dose vaccine. Member states will now have to give their individual sign-offs. OK, it's been a month since Bumble's big day at the Nasdaq when the online networking and dating company IPO'd for $2.2 billion. The company is best known for its Bumble app, on which only the women can make the first move. The company also owns dating app Badu and offers networking and friendship matchmaking. The company says its apps have been a hive of activity during the pandemic, with over 2 million new US downloads in the last three months alone. And joining us now, and you can see her there too, Whitney Wolfhead, founder and CEO of Bumble. Whitney, fantastic to have you on the show. We have so much to talk about. But first, I just want to say congratulations. We just showed an image there of you ringing the bell at the Nasdaq and you were holding your son. You have much to celebrate at this moment. Oh, it's been a very exciting milestone for our company. And we're really grateful and excited about the opportunity. Talk to me about that opportunity, because you made some comments on your earnings call and you said, look, as a result of the pandemic, the world is going to remain digitized at least for the foreseeable future. Is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? How does Bumble see that as an opportunity sure. and a challenge going forward? So we believe that even in a post-COVID world, mm. that the digital dating, uh, the, what we've seen through the pandemic, we believe it's here to stay. And so we think there'll be um, an intersection of digital and physical, but Getting to know someone digitally first is here to stay. You know, over 40% of couples meet online, and that number is only growing. And the fact of the matter is that you, when you meet somebody digitally first, you get so much more information on them, and you can understand who this person is in a deeper way than seeing someone in a coffee shop or at, a, at an event, for example. And really having the opportunity to vet this person first, the safety and the accountability that you get through digital first connection is so much deeper than meeting someone in real life. And we believe that what we will see is this digital first, get to know each other, uh, understand if you have chemistry through the product first, and then move to the physical world. And we think that we will benefit from this significantly because once people do meet in real life, and if it's successful, they'll tell their friends. And that just keeps fueling this organic flywheel that we have benefited from over the last several years. What makes you unique in that regard, Whitney, for all of those reasons where it's establishing those relationships, where it's understanding who it is that you hope at some point that you're going to meet, whether it's a networking opportunity or for dating, what makes your product unique in allowing those individuals to get to know each other better? Why come to you yeah. rather than anyone else? So Bumble has always been a leader in safety and accountability. From day one, uh, myself and our early team, we were very strategic about building better tech. We wanted to create an environment that would be safe and accountable. If you look at what has plagued uh, social media over the years is this lack of accountability and this leaning into anonymity. This leads to harassment and abuse. And so we've been very strategic about building tech that is encouraging and accountable and engineers a better experience. So on Bumble in particular, our app Bumble, women send that first message. And this really takes out a lot of the rejection that men have been faced with over centuries, candidly, making this, you know, it, it, having this pressure to always go first. And so 
we set the relationship off and the connection off on a really positive tone. Not only that, but we've been a leader in these innovative uh, safety and accountability features. We have photo verification. We have uh, really great features to block and report. And so we can really um, help you have a better experience. Not only that, but we were one of the first to market with video chat. And so we've seen that really go through the roof during the pandemic. People are having their first, second, third, even more building full relationships through video. I mean, look what we're doing now. This is all through video. And so you can see that relationships are really taking shape digitally first. Not only that, but we have really innovated. We have um, started to roll out features such as Night In. This is being tested and rolled out um, imminently here in the States where you can actually have trivia night with your match. And so we're creating these opportunities to get to know each other in a more meaningful way, but always with accountability and uh, you know safety at the helm. Yeah, it's funny. I found the quote now. The entire globe has gone through an incredibly lonely period. And I think it plays to what you're saying about trying to root out some of the rejection and making this about a wholesome meeting rather than something that actually is negative. And it's actually the last thing we need at this moment. Monetization, Whitney. This is going to be key, though. I was just looking at the numbers and the most recent I can find, 42 million monthly active users as of the third quarter of 2020. You can update me if, um, if you want to on that, but just 2.4 million paying. How do you boost that proportion of people that are actually paying to use what you're saying and arguing is such a unique resource? How do you boost the number of people that are actually paying to use this? Because that number should be higher. So we are very confident in our ability to increase the conversion from non-paying to paying customers. And you do this in a bevy of ways. It's First and foremost, through the feature offering, right? How can you make somebody's experience better? How can you offer them something that gives them access to something they want? So if you look at the dating wallet in general, offline, uh, the average individual spends a lot of money in the quest for love and companionship and community. And we believe that as we continue to to invest um, resources in building new feature offerings and new mechanisms to enhance your experience, that will uh, in turn increase paying conversion. Not only that, but marketing our paying features. So for example, premium, our premium offering, we have really not even started to scratch the surface of the both in-app and off-the-app marketing of this feature. For example, we have a great new offering called Incognito. This was driven by our customers. So many women in particular, but of course all genders, wanted an opportunity to connect in a way that would protect them from being seen from others. You have folks coming out of divorces or breakups or people just looking for an extra layer of protection. So with Incognito, which is part of our premium offering, you can be invisible on the app only until you basically say yes to the person you're interested in. Can they see you back? And this is an incredible way to take even deeper control over your experience for those that are a bit hesitant to online date, for example. This has not been marketed yet. That's part of our premium offering. So you can see that when you build features that people want, this is really the way you convert customers. And we have a robust plan in the future, but we cannot give any further guidance than what we have already provided on our earnings call. That's okay. That's a tease. I don't mind that. I like the idea of just, you know, onboarding people gently and getting them comfortable with what what it means in order to, um, you know, hopefully get them confident enough to get out there and meeting people again. Whitney, I'm out of time. I have about 20 seconds. You are 31 years old, a woman, you IPO'd, you're managing a family. What's your advice to people very quickly that perhaps want to start a business, want to get out there, but are afraid? 
Don't be afraid. If I can be in the seat I'm in today, really anyone can. You just have to be willing to fail. And I think with failure comes growth and opportunity. And so don't be scared. Just go out there and follow, you know, whatever, identify whatever you hate in the world, whatever is hurting you, breaking your heart and find a business opportunity in that and just go for it. Uh, what do you have to lose? And if I'm here, anybody can be really, truly candidly and just be brave. Be brave. Whitney, great to have you on the show. Can't wait to uh, watch the progress. Whitney Wolfhead, founder Thank and you. CEO of Bumble. Congratulations. What a year. Now, <laughs> it's almost one year since the pandemic forced the New York Stock Exchange to close the trading floor. We'll take a look at the year of tests and triumphs at the exchange next. Welcome back to First Move. Almost one year ago, on March 23rd, the New York Stock Exchange shut down its trading floor due to COVID-19. We remember it well. It's been a difficult year of adjustment for the NYSC, but a profitable one too. 2020 was the busiest period on record for companies coming to market at the big board, thanks to a spike in SPACs and the rise of direct listings. Both are alternative ways for companies to go public. There have been so many SPACs, in fact, that some have warned of a SPAC bubble. And just in case you're really confused, a SPAC, by the way, is an IPO that helps investors raise money for the purpose of taking another company public in the future. Now, today, the New York Stock Exchange is host to a big international IPO, the South Korean e-commerce firm Coupang, as we've discussed. Now, John Tuttle is the vice chairman and chief commercial officer of the NYSE, and he joins us now. And, John, we've just barely managed to get some time with you, quite frankly, because you've clearly been so busy. The question is, can you keep up this pace for the rest of the year? What are you expecting? Well, it's great to be with you. Uh, the, the market continues to welcome new companies. If you would have told me a year ago that 2020 would be the busiest year on record for the New York Stock Exchange and more broadly the U.S. capital markets, I don't think anybody would have believed you, but it certainly has turned out to be. In 2021, the pace hasn't slowed down. It's only accelerated. And so we're continuing to see companies come to the equities market. Investors warmly receive them. And it's not just companies from across the country. It's from around the world, like this morning with Coupon. It's one of the largest IPOs of the decade and the largest international IPO since Alibaba. So the companies are coming from various sectors and geographies, and investors seem to be warmly receiving them. You know, it's fantastic what we're seeing. We've gone through a period, I think, of the last two to three decades where fewer and fewer companies were coming to market. And yet, perhaps it's innovation born out of necessity. The last two years has seen more innovation in this space than we saw for the prior two decades. Are you worried that there's too much enthusiasm? And we've seen the SEC even just in the last few days warning about celebrities coming in and doing these SPACs. John, what's your take on what we're seeing and why? Well, one of the things that's been encouraging over the past few years is that there are more options for companies to come to the public markets, more tailored to meet their objectives and more tailored to meet their investors' objectives. So there is the well-worn path of the IPO, which many folks are most familiar with, but also you're seeing new products like the direct listing where companies that don't necessarily need to raise capital but want the other benefits of being a publicly traded company, and they also want to provide democratized and open access to investors to participate in that opportunity, are coming to market. You've seen SPACs, which seem to be the best path for a certain profile of company that is interested in, in, in coming to the market in something that's more akin to an M&A transaction than a public offering. And now we've been working with the SEC and received approval at the end of last year to have the direct listing plus capital raise. So there's more innovation, which also means that there's more opportunities for more companies to come to the public markets and ultimately opportunities for investors to participate in, the, in that success. 
what about for the investors? Do you have a sense of how well they perform, whether it's a direct listing or a, a SPAC, how they perform afterwards? So the investors that got all excited and got involved, how well they're doing afterwards? It's not your responsibility, but I just wonder whether you, whether you have a sense of how well they perform. Well, every company is different, obviously. They have different capital structures, different management teams, different corporate strategies, and they come to market during different market conditions as well. So it's tough to paint a broad brush. We're, we're encouraged by what we've seen with direct listings. Yesterday, Roblox uh, conducted a direct listing. It was one of the top four largest opening trades in the history of the U.S. capital markets. It was an opportunity for investors, institutional investors, retail investors, and others to participate. And we have more and more companies thinking and and planning for that to be their path to the public market. So while every transaction is different, we want to make sure that there are those options that are best suited to the companies and to the investors, ultimately uh, near term and long term. Yeah, and the idea that there's more options available for investors of all shapes and sizes to come in is a good thing. And we've seen a fewer and fewer available over the past several years. Um, John, talk to me about the structure of the market as well. We've had a lot of attention paid to the rise of the retail investor, the GameStop saga. What do you see going on? And do you think, one, that the marketplace is fair enough? Or are there changes, even at your level, in terms of perhaps cooling off periods that perhaps may improve the functioning of markets or is it or is it efficient enough so we've learned a lot over the the past year and particularly the past few months as well and number one is retail participation in the market is overall a good thing having investors individual investors that are saving for their children's college education or for their own retirement have access to participate in the market and have a level playing field in many cases in that access is a net good thing but what we're constantly thinking about is making sure we balance the right investor protections with the right investor access and what we've seen is that while markets performed very well from a technology standpoint during this time period. There are other components of market structure that need that may need to catch up. Areas like stock lending, areas like clearing methodologies and settlement methodologies. So we've learned a lot and we're going to make sure that we continue to have the U.S. capital markets evolve and that broader infrastructure evolve to meet the ever-changing dynamics of the market. Yeah, it's good you're part of that discussion. John, congratulations. I know your team are working incredibly hard. John Tuttle there, the Vice Chairman and Chief Commercial Officer and Vice Chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. Great to have you with us, sir. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Prince William speaking out about Harry and Meghan's bombshell interview, how he responded to accusations of racism within the royal family just ahead. Welcome back to First Move, days after Harry and Meghan's explosive interview with Oprah Winfrey, which has left Buckingham Palace grappling with stunning allegations of racism. Prince William has broken his silence. Here's how he responded to reporters a short while ago while visiting a school in London. Sir, have you, broke, have you spoken to your brother since the interview? <laughs> no, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I will do. And, and can you just let me know, is the, the royal family a racist family, sir? No, very much not a racist family. Our Anna Stewart is live from Windsor. Wow, Anna, is all I can say. The face of modern monarchy perhaps, in that they're willing to respond to, to journalists. But I'm shocked because we all thought the statement from Buckingham Palace was all we'd get. 
exactly that. And Prince Charles was asked a question about the interview earlier this week on an official visit, and he dodged it. So it really took us all by surprise that Prince William would answer one. Perhaps he just felt so strongly that he couldn't ignore it. Not least, of course, there's so much speculation about which member of the royal family may have raised concerns with Harry about the colour uh, of their child's skin. So he has answered it. This is surprising for a number of reasons. There's obviously the content of it. It's not surprising. He said the royal family is not, are not racist. It's not surprising, perhaps, that he says he hasn't yet spoken to his brother, given we heard from Harry that their relationship is currently one of distance. What is surprising is, A, this was an official visit. There is strict protocol involved. It's been surprising that both Charles and William have been asked questions on these visits, but more surprising that William's also broken protocol by answering it. Secondly, as you said, the statement we had from the Queen right from the top made it very clear that they were going to deal with these issues privately. We were not expecting to have any kind of answers, even short off-the-cuff ones, uh, following that statement. So that has also been a surprise. And Julia, I think answering this question is going to mean many more questions are asked, and not just about the issue of race. Harry and Meghan have made many claims about the royal family, about them not listening to their issues regarding mental health, about not supporting them, even suggesting that members of the royal family were jealous of Meghan's star power. So by one short little answer, I think they're going to get a lot more questions. Julia? Yeah, I couldn't agree more, particularly given that statement said there may have been differing recollections of the conversations that were had as well. But I think you nailed it there. It was something that he felt passionate enough about to answer and be honest about the way that he feels about the family's uh, approach to this, Anna. Fascinating to see what happens next. Yeah, we'll be all watching Edge of Our Seat, Edge of Windsor Castle at the moment, Julia. But of course, all this is happening at the same time as the Queen is dealing with her husband being in hospital. Prince Philip has now been in hospital for over three weeks. He had a heart procedure over a week ago. He's 99 years old. So the royal family has a lot on their plate at the moment. I wouldn't be surprised if Buckingham Palace are caught by surprise by the fact that Prince William has just given a very short answer following that statement they gave. Yeah, but a very powerful one. CNN's Anna Stewart, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for Actu Chatterley CNN as always. And stay safe. In the meantime, Friday tomorrow, we'll be back. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.